hello, hello, hello. This is the sweet tooth coming to talk to you from your mouth. No, just kidding. It's Nikki and Amy. Welcome to the IBS Freedom yeah. Podcast. We are talking about hyperglycemia, mm-hmm. high blood sugar, with some overlap into the more overt diabetes, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a spectrum. The, the worst of the worst is diabetes and like poorly managed diabetes. And then there's the shades of gray underneath diabetes, like high blood sugar and insulin resistance, just some more mild metabolic dysfunction. But we're going to talk about all of that, the whole spectrum today, and more importantly, how it relates to your gut. So Amy, you want to you want to start us off as I usually kind of kick it off to you, put you right on the spot to do so? Yeah, I think that, you know, I have some personal history with hyperglycemia. I'm sure we've might have talked about this a little bit. Have we? I feel like in some capacity, but go ahead, refresh, refresh us because there might be people listening who have never listened to our podcast before. Right. So in which case, welcome, welcome. But yeah, tell us, tell us your kind of experience with hyperglycemia. Yeah. So this was probably about five or six years ago, peak gut issues, like peak peak gut issues had wild blood sugar swings. Like, I mean, getting into, like, the 300s. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So, like, I knew I was having reactions post-meals because I was having, like, insane fatigue, like, needing to kind of lay down. I bet. Post-meals. And again, I think the really extreme stuff was short-lived. But when I had the high... Right. When I had the high blood sugar, I went to my doctor and he's like, okay, like this might be type 1 diabetes. Like, he was he was more convinced that, or at least wanted to really rule out and was considering seriously that I had type 1 diabetes because I had such wild hyperglycemia. Yeah. It turns out I didn't, um, but I did have, like, these kind of wild crashes. I would say more normally it never... There were instances where it went high, but more normally I would say I was going into, like, the high 100s. At times. Okay. Yeah. Which Post- is still high. Right. And sometimes it would crash down. It was almost, it almost looked more like a delayed response to mm. the meal, like a delayed probably insulin response or something to, to the meals I was eating. Yeah. But it was wild. It, it was really wild. And it was probably a primary, one of the primary symptoms I was having. It was probably the primary symptom I was having outside the gut symptoms. But it was also feeding into the gut symptoms. And the gut yeah. symptoms, I feel like, and the gut situation was feeding into the the hyperglycemia. Yeah. So what I've noticed is there was some improvement in my blood sugar when I took antibiotics. Like when I was on antibiotics, mm-hmm. there was some, some improvement. Um, so I think there might have been a little bit of endotoxemia happening. Yeah. But at the same time, like... In my particular scenario, which we can talk about in more detail, I was lower carb at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So, but I was still having these like surges in blood sugar. You had to be lower carb. Right. Cut out the carrots, man. And that was my initial like approach was like, oh gosh, like I need to lower a little bit. But that didn't help at all. That almost made things worse. Mm. And then it actually took probably stabilizing my carbs um, and doing that for longer. Like, it took a decent period of time for me to get this this right. But I think initially, like, doing stuff, 
that kind of cleared out some of the bad bugs, but then also doing work on the diet, primarily raising carbs, which is something I think we should talk a little bit about, like hormonally. Plot twist. Yeah, like hormonally, there was there was, I had ex- I had high cortisol across the board. I had um, thyroid insufficiency across the board, both of which can certainly lead to problems managing blood glucose. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was my primary issue. And when I started to increase carbs, which probably increased my calories a little bit, I was probably still yeah. a little bit under my calorie needs at that time as well, which was yeah. making matters worse. But when I did that, when I feel like my nutrition was more optimized with more carbs and in in doing so, probably more calories, that was when my blood sugar became more balanced. Isn't it funny? Because that's the polar opposite of what we see (laughs) on the internet and Facebook groups and summits. Like, and again, it, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before. It's not that low carb diets across the board are bad or they're useless. There are certain conditions that they can be really, really helpful for. The ketogenic diet can be really, really helpful for certain things. But probably not everything. It's probably not this miraculous cure-all that everybody needs to be doing, like it's kind of purported on the internet, right? Like, you know, a housewife from Ohio might not need to do keto. She just might need to be more focused on eating healthy overall instead of, like, subscribing to this new diet. And the same thing goes for vegan or paleo or any other diet for that matter. You might not need to restrict that much, but... Um, it's interesting that you said that increasing carbs and therefore likely calories has helped. I don't know. Have I told you much about one of my my closest friends is going through a bit of a health crisis right now. Mm. She's been bedridden literally mm. for the last oh almost two months. She got off of Diet Coke. She was very addicted to Diet Coke and was mm. way over consuming Diet Coke. And initially she thought she was like detoxing from aspartame and we've kind of pieced things together bit by bit, but it turns out she's very histamine intolerant and has mm. POTS. She got diagnosed with POTS. Oh my um, gosh. She got diagnosed with histamine issues, which we've talked, we've talked about histamine with her on and off for a couple of years, actually, because like mm-hmm. we talk about health all the time. And so we knew she had at least a little bit of underlying histamine issue But then this pot stuff kind of came out of the blue more so when she gave up the Diet Coke and she's been detoxing from that. But she was noticing she was getting really bad anxiety and full-blown panic attacks. And panic attacks so bad that she was going to the ER multiple times. And of course, the ER, they were so helpful at the ER. Right, right. (laughs) Telling her things like, I shit you not, telling her things like, honey, why are you letting your brain do this to you? Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. But what we found, I had her get a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM. Mm-hmm. Turns out it's related to our blood sugar. Yeah. And it's not even like the high point or the low point that she gets to, but it seems like it's the speed at which her blood sugar drops. So like she'll get up to a fairly normal level after she eats and that it'll sink like a rock. And that's when right. she starts getting the panic attacks. But for her, Mm -hmm. she noticed, uh, and this is a woman, you know, she's done keto in various forms on and off Mm -hmm. for years. And she's, she's, (laughs) I've kind of talked her through that a little bit as her friend on and off. But for her, she actually noticed that her blood sugar was more stable and she did not get those drastic swings and those drastic plummets. 
when she started eating more complex carbs. So she started eating mm. like a bit of brown rice or some sweet potatoes or even right. some white potatoes or a little bit more fruit. And she noticed that adding in the carbohydrates actually helped pull her out of that versus when she was trying to go lower and lower and lower carb. It was it was almost like her body didn't know how to process carbs anymore, which, mm. you know, seems like not a bad thing if you think about like the keto adapted kind of world. But it was literally sending her to the ER with panic attacks and pots and yeah. like fainting spells. And it, it just clearly wasn't working for her to go that low carb or go to full-blown keto, she actually needed some carbohydrates to normalize her system and get her out of those really vicious swings. Yeah. And and I think like in my own situation too, which is similar to that, like I think a similar thing could have been happening. Like I know with me, probably being low carb really kept my cortisol levels high because my body was like, hey, we need a certain level of glucose in your bloodstream at all times. And you're if not, not going to give it to us. We're going to make it. Right. Yeah, we're going to we're going to increase your cortisol production so that you can break down protein to make glucose. Yep. And and maintain your blood sugar, but I think once that process is happening, like cortisol is doing everything possible to try to keep glucose into the bloodstream, and then if you're in that state and then you eat, mm. and you have like any bits of car or if, if you have any bits of carbs, sometimes that's going to cause a spike. Yeah. And then there's almost like this delayed she it sounds like she was having almost a delayed reaction because my my blood sugar would fall pretty rapidly too. Like mm-hmm. I would be high but then I'd go like Shoop, and yep. that did not feel nice. The cr- no. the crash does not feel nice. So, yeah, I think that I think the hormonal piece of it is big and I wonder I mean, I'm not necessarily I don't I haven't worked with many i think i've had a few of client clients that have had di- like outright diabetes mm. but i think there's so many clients that have some of these blood sugar issues yeah i think my sort of ex- from my experience it's not limited to women but i think women are a little bit more prone i think they're a little bit more prone to carb being subpar like hormonally like i think they're a little more sensitive to being a bit low carb and a lot of my clients are just naturally slightly low carb with some of the diets they're following yeah Yeah. but yeah i think that it's a pretty common thing that i look out for and i'm sure you do too to see how someone's blood sugar is being regulated and the last thing i'll I'll say about this too is i find that with blood sugar and I even was guilty of this in my own journey, where it's like when you're so hyper-focused on SIBO, like, oh, yeah. the SIBO. I find that a lot of my clients are like, oh, the SIBO is making me so tired after meals, or like I'm feeding the SIBO yeah. and I'm so... T-. And yeah. it's there's no investigation or looking at other factors there. And more often than not, it's not the SIBO. It's that your blood sugar, or a lot of cases, it's because the blood sugar is swinging. And that's why their yeah. energy levels are, are not super stable throughout the day. And they have blood sugar symptoms. So yeah. it's just a another example of trying to investigate a little bit. Don't while SIBO can certainly cause a number of symptoms and IBS can cause a number of symptoms, you don't want to blame every symptom on that because you could be missing yeah. crucial pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, it's, I think it's underestimated, mm-hmm. um, like in, in prevalence, if you think about how common 
blood sugar issues are. I mean, if we look at IBS as a proxy, right, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people with IBS actually have SIBO. If we look at IBS as a proxy, about 50% of people with IBS have some degree of insulin resistance or over diabetes, 50%. Mm -hmm. So if you go onto your Facebook groups, your SIBO groups, or your, you know, your IBS groups, or whatever it might be, or your Candida groups, an awful lot of those people are going to be afflicted by either overt diabetes or insulin resistance and have some degree of metabolic impairment. But mm. how many people are actually talking about that in those groups? I mean, I, I've witnessed those groups. I, I've lurked in there for a lot right. of years. Well, Hardly ever yeah. does blood sugar yeah. get brought up. And if it is brought up, it's like what you said. It's the SIBO is getting blamed for it or the mm-hmm. IBS is getting blamed for it. And we know that that is a piece of it, right? Like what you alluded to, if you have a lot of gram-negative bacteria, you have a lot of LPS being produced, it gets through the gut barrier, particularly if you have a leaky gut, and then boom, you've got endotoxemia. And then that is very well associated now with diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, Mm -hmm. like all of those kinds of symptoms. So we know that the microbiome influences our metabolism and can send you further down the path of insulin resistance. But it's not, the opposite is true too. If your blood sugar management is crap, your poor gut is going to be on the roller coaster that you're on. And the roller coaster sucks across the board for both of you, you and your gut. (laughs) Right. So like sometimes you need to work on both simultaneously. Right. And I, I think you're dead on. There's no new, I feel like a lot of, with a lot of things in the SIBO space, unfortunately, there's not tons of nuance, but I think with the blood sugar situation, there tends to be so much focus on, you know, the SIBO and how that drives blood sugar, but very, very, very little focus on what you can do either dietarily or lifestyle wise to help. That would just be good for, for, in general, for blood sugar stability. And I think that, Culturally, too, just a lot of my clients are sort of maybe losing weight. Not all of them. Some of them have some weight gain, too. But a lot of them are under eating. And so the, their blood sugar situation is more complicated because of this side that you're not talking about. Or that, I'm sorry, that we're talking about now where the things you're doing could really be influencing blood sugar and making the situation so much so much worse. And yeah. it really takes t- an analyzing, you know, different factors that are involved in blood sugar so that you can get those back into balance. And, you know, and I think with women, like I was saying before, I think it's a little bit worse in terms of like not getting enough calories. Like I think that that's more common among women. Yeah. I feel like it's just because culturally there's like women are eating we cute all salads. We all want to lose 10 pounds. Yeah, or we're eating cute salads and we're eating cute smoothies. And it's like, these are things that aren't necessarily like the most calorie dense. And it's just a very, culture in general is diet centric. But I think for women take that on more than men do. Um, Stereotypically, I mean, not everyone, but. um, No, I think oftentimes that is the case. Yeah, and I I think Mm. that like mild blood sugar, mild blood sugar issues are extremely common with a lot of women. Um, some people might have a little bit more intense symptoms, but like I think across the board, a lot of people struggle with this stuff. Yeah. And some basic changes can make a really big impact. Like when I yeah. work with clients, 
that are having blood sugar swings, like, sometimes just the simplest things can make such a big impact in, like, energy levels, in their just cognitive function. Like, some of the systemic-type symptoms can get a lot better when your blood sugar is balanced, and then that in turn helps the gut, which we haven't really talked about, how necessarily hyperglycemia affects the gut yet. Well, and that's maybe a good segue. I'm gonna I'm gonna lower myself. I got okay. cocky and decided I wanted to stand this podcast episode and then I saw Oh, I didn't no. even notice. Well meanwhile I sound like I'm hacking up a hairball. Sorry guys, I'll try to mute my camera for or my mic for a second. Good God. I've joked for a while. I think I'm on the histamine spectrum somewhere. And I I recently started playing with a new supplement, and I think it might have just made me a little bit more flummy than my normal. So sorry, I'm, mm. I'll I'll try to mute my mic when I can, but I'm not sure how well that'll work <laughs> uh, as I hack up a hairball. But I'm reasonably sure I don't have the Rona, so that's good. Good, good for that. Yeah, you know, all you can hope for. You'll keep um, us posted. Yeah, but we're, yeah, for sure. But um, but yeah, I think that's a good segue into let's talk about some of the ways that high mm-hmm. blood sugar will affect the gut. First and foremost, I'll just I'll kind of point out to take like the very broad eagle eye overview mm-hmm. to begin with, and then we can narrow it down. No tissue in your body works optimally when you have hyperglycemia. Like yeah. it's just. I remember still, like, I always talk about Karazian because I took his classes predominantly early on in in my training. And I remember, to his credit, one of the things he always drilled into our skulls, Mm -hmm. every single seminar, no matter what the topic, was you have to evaluate for anemia and you have to evaluate for blood glucose. Because if you're not getting fuel and you're not getting oxygen to the tissues, no matter what tissue you're talking about, they will not work. I don't care if you're talking about the ovaries, the skin, the inside of your nose, your left big toe, it does not matter. No tissue in your body is going to work without oxygen and Mm -hmm. fuel. And I give him a lot of credit for that because that was a really good reminder to have constantly throughout my functional medicine training. But, you know, if you think about it from that perspective of no tissue in your body works correctly when you're inflamed or when you have... Mm -hmm inadequate oxygen delivery or inadequate glucose delivery, then that can kind of frame how big of a deal this is. But that if you want to really, really hone in on one part of the body in particular that hates weird blood sugar stuff, (laughs) it's your nervous system. The hell with the gut, honest to God. The hell with the gut, in a way, it's your nervous system. That's why we're now Mm -hmm. saying that that Alzheimer's, they're calling type 3 diabetes. We're seeing that the... Your elevation in A1C is directly correlated with the incidence of Alzheimer's later on in life, and I believe Parkinson's as well. If you have been a type 2 diabetic who has been so poorly controlled that you need to take insulin, the dose and the the number of years that you take insulin, that is directly correlated with the likelihood of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's later in life. Wow. Just really wild stuff. But mm-hmm. hold on, I'm sorry. Good Lord. Sorry. We want to um, hear the throat clear. Oh my gosh. I, I <laughs> just sound so cute right now. But, you know, if you think about the gut brain axis and mm-hmm. I don't know, your vagus nerve, this is a huge deal for everything that we're talking about with IBS. Because remember, the vagus nerve and your gut brain axis ultimately control your secretions, your HCL, your enzyme, your bile output, your motility, peristalsis 
It it influences mm-hmm. the behavior of the immune system local in the gut. It influences the liver, the spleen. Right. All of your innards are directly controlled by the gut-brain connection of the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And your nervous system is going to be royally PO'd if it does not have adequate, consistent blood sugar supply and fuel supply. And I know there's people in the background saying, but the nervous system loves ketones. Just be keto adapted. Sure. But like, not everybody wants to be keto adapted. I'm sorry. I do not find that appealing in my life. And I do this for a living. Like, I want to be able to eat some carbs and I want to be able to eat carrots and not think about how many carbs are in the damn carrot. So your nervous system can function under those circumstances, but you have to kind of work your ass off to get there in that it is realistically not appealing for everybody to do that. So, you know, Mm. the ketone conversation aside, your body just wants constant fuel supply and it gets used to one type of fuel, namely blood sugar in some capacity. But what's interesting, I don't know if I shared this with you, there was actually a study that I found not that long ago where they measured the thickness of the vagus nerve I think they were doing MRIs, maybe CTs, I forget now, but they were doing imaging and then they were looking at the cross section and they looked at the thickness of the vagus nerve in Mm. diabetics and non-diabetics. Holy crap, Amy. It was so huge. The thickness of the vagus nerve, the girth of the vagus nerve was about 50% smaller in people who had (gasps) diabetes compared to quote unquote healthy normals. Oh my gosh. That should be where we had the podcast. Like nothing else matters. Right. <laughs> like, holy right. crap, that's huge. The vagus nerve goes out the window. There goes your gut function totally out the window. No matter what the hyperglycemia does to the gut lining, the microbiome, and all the other crap in your gut itself, if the vagus nerve is toast, you're toast. So we've got right. to get on top of the blood sugar thing. Yeah. And, and I think if I remember right, and you could tell me if I'm on the right track, that with the nervous system, it they don't require like nervous system cells, like neurons and things like that. If I remember right from school, that they don't require insulin for glucose uptake. Mm, I think you're correct. Yeah. So that's yeah. where the problem comes in. Or that's how I've always understood it too, where when you have high blood sugar... And then the nerve, the nervous system cells can be a little bit more flooded with glucose without regulation. Yeah, it causes a lot of problems. Like there's less regulation. And that's probably designed that way because the nervous system needs glucose. So like there's kind of uh, having easier access to to blood sugar probably has some some evolutionary benefits. But picturing like if you're on the brink of death. Right. right. Like if your blood sugar is getting close to zero and you're on the brink of death and then somebody like in a movie, you know, the heroic moment, like, wait, here's right. a Pringle or right. whatever it is like, and they run and they save the main character and they put the Pringle in your mouth and it dissolves. You want there to be as few barriers to getting the neurons, the nourishment right. they need. So like in right. a pinch, you don't necessarily want to wait for like the pancreas to do its job. And right. I'd watch Wait that for movie, the hormonal honestly. control. Right? Like, we should direct <laughs> movies and write movies. Honestly, I right. feel like we have so many good ideas that we could just make into, like, a very oh weird... Gosh. A very weird series of short films. Yes. This will be our, ex- our next career. Once we cure the world of IBS, this will be our next career. Yeah. Well, and I think with, with the blood sugar, too, I mean, the most obvious example mm. 
I mean, you said diabetes with the vagus nerve, which adds like some amazing evidence of how it affects the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's been a long standing under, there's been a long standing acknowledgement that diabetes affects motility with gastroparesis being a very common symptom with with people that have diabetes. But I think that that hasn't really been like outside of diabetes, that hasn't been a something that, I hear being talked about often, mm-hmm. but it, it is something that's been a really well-recognized symptom of diabetes is gastroparesis. A lot of yeah. diabetes need prokinetics and motility agents to keep their gut moving efficiently because of some of the nerve damage that has happened because of the high glucose levels. Yeah. And if you think like, if you think over to SIBO and the MMC, mm-hmm. you know, we largely talk about the migrating motor complex as being a small intestinal phenomenon, but I think it's like 70% of MMC waves actually begin in the stomach. Right. And about roughly about 70% of MMC activity is controlled by the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in theory, you could have your vagus nerve severed and still have some MMC activity, but it's not going to be anything to be proud of. Like, right. to be quite honest, like it's, it's going to be at maximum, it's going to be 30% of what it was once capable of. So you'd better hope that your other mechanisms are really, really good and not at all compromised if you don't have a vagus nerve. So I would just rather not risk it. And I would rather take care of my vagus nerve and try to promote MMC activity through that route, since that's the vast majority of it. But if you think to gastroparesis, a motility disorder of the stomach, well, okay, 70% of MMC waves start in the stomach. So if you have overt stomach dysmotility, there's a very high likelihood that you will have MMC dysfunction and therefore SIBO as well. Right. And I wonder too, like while we're on the topic of, of diabetes broadly, how many people with di- with diabetes have SIBO? Like, cause there's so, there's yeah. so many people that have, I mean, diabetes is, is growing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, it'd be interesting to to see like what the SIBO rates were. I don't remember if there's been studies recently. I haven't I dove into now. anything specific. I forget. I did I did a video on hyperglycemia and SIBO not all that mm-hmm. long ago on my YouTube channel. And I feel like I might have had some data in that video, but I don't remember off the top of my head now. Mm-hmm. I would wager uh, quite a few people right. with diabetes have SIBO. Right. Um, I, if I, I'm kind of compelled by the number 50%, but I could be getting that confused with the right. diabetes IBS numbers that I'm f- familiar yeah. with, but I, they're very well associated. It's just a matter of how prevalent it is. Right. Right. And again, if nothing else, the vagus nerve could be one of the links, but what about some other ways that hyperglycemia might impair the gut, maybe directly at the tissue level? I know that's also associated high cortisol and yeah. hyperglycemia are both associated with leaky gut as right. well. So there there goes more of an issue with your metabolic endotoxemia absorbing all the LPS through your leaky gut kind of an issue too. Right. Kind of the whole immune activation, mm-hmm. leaky gut inflammation picture that yeah. is going to be a runaway train. <laughs> yeah. And I think again, like, you know, the nervous system's controlling digestive capacity too. So there's going to be motility loss. There's going to be digestive capacity loss mm-hmm. too. If the nervous system can't function properly. Um, yeah. 
you know, if the vagus nerve is decreasing in size by 50, well, that's diabetes, but so there could be less yeah. of a, of a effect nervous system wise in the, in the broadly with people that have blood sugar or hyperglycemia. Yeah. Um, but you know, you'd have to think that there, there's some nervous system dysfunction going on with that. And whenever you have nervous system dysfunction, I think again, it's like pretty much most things that are supposed to work in the gut go awry <laughs> if the nervous yeah. system is being burdened by inflammation. Yeah. yeah. And you just touched on something I don't know if we've ever talked about, but it's worth mentioning. Sometimes with research, you know, research is going to be most compelling and most interesting and therefore get the most funding if it's a really stark contrast or a really right. like overt thing. So you're going to see a lot more research on the overt disease diabetes than you ever will the topic of like mild insulin resistance, right? Right. And like, it's it's understandable because you can get a really stark contrast with the data between diabetes and the quote unquote healthy normal versus somebody who has very mild insulin resistance versus a healthy normal. Like it but you could usually take that information and to some degree you could extrapolate and yeah. use that in the less severe case. So like if there's that degree of vagus nerve impairment to the point where the thickness of the nerve is decreased right. by about 50% in diabetics, you could be damn sure it's doing something not nice to your vagus nerve if you have insulin resistance, even if you don't yet have diabetes. So right. it's like you can kind of take that information and then you can make it more relevant for your life. I just saw st I saw something on Instagram today, actually, when I was posting my reel and the guy was saying um, he was quoting a newish study out of Stanford, which I had glanced at. But apparently in that study, they had shown that fermented foods increase microbiome diversity. I don't know if you saw that or if I mentioned mm -hmm. that to you before. Uh, what I didn't realize, because I just skimmed the article before, was that in their study, they showed that six servings of fermented foods per day increased diversity. And he was giving like the amounts, mm -mm, mm, mm -hmm. pardon me, in like the comments and whatnot. And, you know, it was like six ounces of yogurt or kefir or like X amount of, of fermented veggies. Six servings a day, though. Like, Holy I cow, can't. Yeah. I love yogurt. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I was fueled by Greek yogurt for so many years of my life. And even I'm like, that's a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can comprehend having that much. Right, thirty six ounces, thirty six ounces of of yogurt. That'd be a lot. I'm. I mean, theoretically, you could have like two servings of yogurt for breakfast, and then have like a a big old plate of like kimchi at lunch, right. and then have a big old plate of pickled beets or whatever at dinner. But like, that's not something that normal people are going to do, even right. for people who like fermented food like me. It's not right. going to happen, but it's like, okay, well, they had to do the research that way so that they could get that stark contrast and they right. could prove the point. So now you can extrapolate down and you can say, okay, if six servings a day clearly made that much of an impact, then I'm probably getting a less profound, but still positive impact if I have mm -hmm. like one fermented thing per day. Right. right. So it's like, right. it's not going to be as sexy. It's not going to be as profound, but you can, right. you can kind of like make use of the data that way. So just keep your wits about right. you. Well, into go off that as well. I think that, you know, with people that have labs drawn, 
Mm-hmm. And, like, rarely am I seeing people that get labs drawn and they have, like, a high fasting blood mm-hmm. sugar level. And I'm like, did your doctor talk to you about, mm-hmm. like, your blood glucose level? Or maybe it's borderline. Like, yeah. rarely have they been talked to about, you know, this blood glucose is a little bit high, like, on the higher end. Like, we might want to be, we might want to see what your blood sugar is doing. Why, why fit? Why in a fasted state is at this level? Or even A1Cs too. Sometimes A1Cs, like, I'm shocked that doctors aren't moving and shaking, but it's sort of the yeah. the scenario you're talking about where it's like, there's less moving and shaking until it gets to a point that's very dysfunctional yeah. and more problematic. And it's it like... It has to be in your face for conventional medicine to care. Right. To God. Right. And that's um, just the world they're in. And I think that that's something to to highlight because with my clients sometimes when I'm like we should do like a little bit of testing or try a CGM or do a, a regular glucometer if they don't feel like getting a CGM but like do something to kind of try to regulate this or even do further labs or something yeah. just to get a better picture sometimes it's like kind of like what like I have blood sugar like yeah. th- it's just I I don't think it's top of mind but you know I found it to be re- really valuable to get kind of a deeper understanding of what what's going on but i i do think it's a neglected area when you can start to see changes happening there people aren't moving and shaking until it gets to a point that can be labeled something and that's you know that's happening with other conditions but i'll just point it out too like the absurdity where literally (laughs) i guarantee you if you had blood drawn with your primary care or OBGYN or whoever, if you had your blood drawn and your fasting glucose was 99, they would not talk to you about it at all. Right. They'd be like, right. yep, you're totally normal and healthy. Good for you. Fasting glucose of one-on-one, they're going to, they're maybe going to be having a conversation with you like, right. oh, this is bad. Right. And it's just, it's so ludicrous to think that they're not at least mentioning it. Like it doesn't right. even take that much effort. That's the thing that kills me is like, hey, your labs came back. Your glucose is 99 that's the high end of normal, dot, dot, dot. Maybe, you know, make a point to get some exercise and not overindulge in sugar. Right. And that's all a lot of people need. Right. When, you know, not the people listening to our podcast, probably, to be quite honest, but like, for a lot of people, that's all they kind of need is they need somebody to point out, hey, this is like kind of dysfunctional, but not a disease yet. You have a chance to do something about it. Just like, don't eat all the Skittles. You know, like, I don't know. But- we're not having those conversations. And the same thing happens with, with other stuff. Like you'll have somebody who has a TSH of 4.49 and the doctor's like, Nope, your, your thyroid is good. It's great. It's normal. And then when TSH is like 4.51, they're like, Oh, you're hypothyroid. Maybe, maybe you need a medication and it's just absurd, but always keep that in mind. And also, you know, honestly, I think that part of the problem with high blood sugar is that it's not talked enough, uh, talked about enough in the IBS and SIBO space. Mm-hmm. I think the other piece that really aggravates me is that it is so misunderstood and oversimplified. Yeah. Again, like, even if somebody were to bring up high blood sugar in one of those forums or one of those summits right. or something, or in the context of gut health, I can almost guarantee you the conversation is going to be, so you have to cut down carbs. Right. End of story. Right. no. No experimentation, no curiosity, no tailoring it for the individual, no observation to see if that actually works for you. It's just, oh, carbs are evil. End of story. Right. And that's not 
necessarily the case. And then also there are tools, there are herbs and supplements that you could consider taking, which we'll get into maybe next. But, you know, I think even if it's borderline, it could be worthy of your attention. Um, And to that point, I want to make sure we mention diagnostics really quick too. And you can weigh in on these as well. But I think for fasting glucose, I would normally look for something between maybe 75 and 90 as the ideal range, like a functional range, if you will. Yeah. If you're starting to creep well into the 90s, certainly the high 90s, I would start paying attention to it. And certainly if yeah. your fasting glucose is above 100, you're getting into pre-diabetes territory or or possibly diabetes, depending how high it is. With A1C, I, I use it a little bit, but I don't use it a ton. There was an article, I think it might have been Chris Cresser a few years ago, I was researching this, because I was seeing a couple of patients who had abnormally high A1Cs, judging by their build and their diet. And it turns out that A1C is not as reliable as we once thought it was. Yeah. Because it's, it's so it's hemoglobin A1C, right? So it's hemoglobin, and then you slap on a glucose onto that hemoglobin molecule. And it's very, very strongly influenced by the amount of hemoglobin you have, or the the shelf life, if you will, of your hemoglobin and your red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And that varies from person to person. Like I might have really long lived red blood cells, say my red blood cells maybe live for four months, but maybe you have really rapid turnover of red blood cells and you're making a new crop every two months. Right. So right. we're going to have different A1Cs. If mine are really longer lived red blood cells and therefore my hemoglobin gets a free ride around the bloodstream for that much longer, then I'm going to have an artificially inflated A1C. And if you have rapid turnover of your red blood cells and therefore your hemoglobin, you're going to have an artificially lower A1C than we otherwise would expect. So mm-hmm. I don't use A1C a ton because I find it unreliable, to be honest. But theoretically, you want it below 5.6. Right. Maybe 5.5 if you want a functional range. Do you ever get a chance to see fasting insulin or send out for that? Because I actually use fasting insulin a moderate amount of the time. I find that fasting glucose and fasting insulin together gives a lot more information than A1C ever could. And I find that to be pretty useful. Yeah, I've I've definitely had some clients, especially with outright hyperglycemia request insulin, fasted insulin. Mm. Yeah. Um, some of them have had already had it drawn, just depending mm-hmm. on severity. But I would say sometimes my more borderline people, depending on what their scenario is, because sometimes if they're like, if they're a little bit low carb already, mm-hmm. sometimes insulin's lo- like not, not as much of the problem. But yeah. if they, if they're eating like carbs and things like that, and they haven't necessarily done all these manipulations, I think it could be a valuable marker for sure. Yeah. And I I think that's actually a worthy point. I think for somebody who's already doing lower carb, I don't know how much I would track fasting insulin, to be honest, because then it can kind of become obsessive and neurotic and it can be used as it can be used as an excuse why you need to go lower carb and you need to cut out the carrots because carrots have carbs or whatever it might be. So I think it could possibly feed into some disordered eating patterns in certain people. Mm. But for like the average kind of Joe... It could right. be useful. And actually, right. I'll, I'll kind of reveal this. Um, so one of my family members has a, a strong family history. It's on Mike's side of family. Strong family history of type 2 diabetes. And it's so cute. Sometimes when I go visit family, like, they'll ask me to look at blood work and stuff. Yeah. Now, and I'm like, 
okay, sure. Yeah. And like, we'll talk about supplements. Like my father-in-law was telling me that he started taking a cinnamon supplement for Aww, his blood yeah. sugar and it's helped and it's helped lower his A1C and it's, it's, I love it. It's precious. But so one of my family members, you know, we actually, I drew some blood on him and fasting glucose, fine. I mean, it's like 92, like really yeah. not anything to shake a stick at. A1C is flawless. Fasting insulin elevated, mm. however. And and LabCorp's range is like, I forget what it is, but Huge. it's like, it's like yeah, 2 it's to like 20 or something. Two, no, it's like 2 to 25 or maybe oh 24. It's huge. Yeah. From a functional perspective, fasting insulin should probably between be between 5 and 10 mm-hmm. in an ideal world. And this particular family member, his was basically 24, 25, somewhere in that range. LabCorp even flagged it as high. And it was just, it was funny because he was like, Oh, but my, my general practitioner told me I don't have prediabetes. I'm not, I, I don't have an issue. And it's like, this person is sitting in front of you, strong family history, overweight, high fasting insulin, but because glucose and A1C are completely normal, this practitioner was like, no, you're good. Right. Eat all the Pringles. I I mean, they didn't say that, but you know, it's like, no. And, and I think when there's that compelling evidence, like family history, and like being overweight or knowing that you have that kind of tendency, I think it's worthy of investigating. So like for him, I was really glad that we, well, I was glad that I was in charge of ordering the blood work and not his chucklehead PCP. But, you know, it's like we were able to confirm, no, this really is a thing you need to be mindful of. Like this, right. this, you are insulin resistant. And, you know, for whatever reason, maybe your red blood cells, maybe your red blood cell turnover is so fast that your mm. A1C look stellar for that reason. Right. You know, like maybe that was doing it. And maybe like your fasting glucose wasn't impaired because you get decent enough sleep. I don't know. Like maybe there's some other factors, but clearly your fasting insulin is elevated and that needs to be addressed. Um, And then the last thing I'll share too, that I've used diagnostically, there's a marker called glycomark. And that one can be more useful if you're trying to figure out if somebody has a high blood sugar, but it's like always kind of high and flipping around in that high zone or what you described, like I Mm -hmm. guarantee you, your glycomark would have been abnormal years ago. Glycomark is going to be abnormal when you have somebody who has an average glucose level that's too high, Mm -hmm. but the pattern is super, super high crash and burn, super, super high crash and burn. And it's those, those really high peaks make glycomark look abnormal. So for somebody like Mm. you, you know, your fasting glucose or A1C may or may not have been out of range. Your fasting insulin, when when you took it, may or may not have been out of range. But I I guarantee you, if we had a time machine and we went back and stole your blood, weird plot for another movie, by the way. How about that? Right. (laughs) We get a time machine and we go back and like our mission is to like sneak up on you and somehow steal a vial of blood without you knowing it. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right? But, like, you and previous Amy can't be in the same room for too long. Otherwise, like, the fabric of the universe would, would crumble <laughs> or something. So, like, I would have to be the one, like, posing as a phlebotomist or something. I don't know. Oh like, gosh. this could be a really good plot. But but glycomar can be useful as well when you're trying to understand, you know, if you're just always high or if you have these really drastic swings and you have these really huge peaks of blood sugar. So that's the other kind of diagnostic piece I would add in. Well, and I think even like making a quick point for the A1C as well, like my A1C during that time Mm -hmm. was always normal. Mm -hmm. 
because I was going high and then going low and then going high and then going low. So like yeah. the average was like kind of more normal. Like, normal. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, that's another problem with the A1C is that it's an average. Yeah. So if yeah. there, if your problem's more the swing than anything else, you could be, it could, you could miss some issues there. Yeah, yeah I think that's, that's spot on. Um, so why don't we, why don't we jump into some treatments or some, some therapeutic strategies that we might yeah. use in somebody and we can, I think there's a couple that might be more specific for the person with the really bad swings up, down, up, down, and then just overall like blood sugar management and support. I think that those are two different conversations, right. but you want to start out, um, maybe just start us off with what helped you the most with your blood sugar and did it seem to get better over time as you healed your gut or was there anything in particular? I know you said antibiotics actually helped, but was there anything else in particular that really, really helped you beyond antibiotics and actually adding in more calories and adding in more carbs? Um, those were the two biggest things. I didn't really use herbs or anything like therapeutically. I did mm-hmm. track. For me, that I feel like became a little bit neurotic with like mm. my with the finger prick scenario like it almost created a little bit more anxiety i I think it can be useful depending on the person and i actually think continuous cgm is probably better in situations like that where you're not like having to do something after each meal like having to be reminded after each meal and not to mention the pain like just doing the finger prick all the time like nobody looks forward to that that's not a good therapeutic thing for your vagus nerve yeah so Again, I I think that was helpful to a point. Like sometimes I'll have clients where they're like, where you know, for one reason or the other, they don't want to do like a CGM, and they'll mm-hmm. do it for a period of time, and I'll give them like specific instructions of like how I'd go about doing it. They don't have to do it all the time, but just like give me a few data points of fasted, give me a few data yeah. points of of like a couple meals an hour and two hours after, and like give me a couple data points to look at and what you ate and like if you can know patterns but yeah you know i think the cgm from a client standpoint has been a little bit more useful uh, but i i didn't use that at the time really i think for me primarily it was uh calories and carbs that that were huge um and again again, that that's counterintuitive to what a lot of people would tell you on the internet right And, and i think like Really, if I had someone that was that's coming to me that's having blood sugar swings, there's really going to be the four, the core four in general that I want to work on. Like from a diet lifestyle standpoint, would be nutrition, movement, sleep, and stress management. All of those aspects are going to affect, are going to affect how you're managing your blood sugar. Absolutely. I think that like diet wise. A lot of people, some of the, I think this is also a little bit more common in women, but not always. Like I'm working with a client now who's having some blood sugar swings. This is a man though. So he's a little bit, I feel like different in this regard where, you know, his breakfast is pretty much all carbs and he has a history of like a a gastrectomy. Like he has kind of a, a more intense history of some surgery. So he's a little bit scared of like fats and yeah. certain macros, but his blood sugar is also swinging. So we're like trying mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, how he's going to manage the situation. But I don't think it's super abnormal for Americans across the board 
to have like more high carb breakfasts that ha- yeah. have less protein. Um, and I think that that's a, an issue. Just general meal balance and meal patterns, I think, play a really big impact on this. And this mm-hmm. is a little bit of a, I would say, a contingency of working with someone. Like if someone's struggling with blood sugar balance, for typical SIBO clients, I think fasting helps. But I think there's a subset of people struggling. Like it might take some experimentation with meal patterns to figure out what works. And you could Mm -hmm. maybe adjust it over time as the blood sugar becomes more stable. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a subset of people that struggle to go, if their blood sugar is really dysregulated, struggle to go long periods without eating. Some people, again, might benefit from fasting from a high blood sugar standpoint. So it can be a really individual kind of in my, from my regard or from my standpoint too, like I didn't benefit from going any lower carb, but someone else might benefit from going a little bit lower carb. It sort of takes analyzing what seems to help the person, but you might want to adjust like meal patterns. I think consistency of meal patterns can be whatever you do decide on trying to be a little bit consistent with meal times, that kind of stuff. But yeah, Really, meal balance, so having some protein, having some fat, having some carbs with each meal is huge from, like, a nutrition standpoint. Yeah. And I do a lot of work with my clients on, like, plate balance when they're Mm -hmm. eating their meals. And I think that that can be a little bit foreign depending on the person and what they've traditionally eaten. So hmm. that's the that's the biggest thing I think nutritionally. There's certain nutrients that I also think are are at play here. Like chromium is is mm-hmm. a big one, zinc, yeah. yeah. Magnesium, thiamine, which I know we've talked about too, yeah. like is could be lower in in SIBO clients and it has a big and diabetics a, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean thiamine's a, a big one. Um, because it's important in insulin production. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's both macro and micro considerations when you're trying to manage blood sugar. I'll throw out one more too. It's not going to be across the board, but if somebody is diabetic and they're on metformin, I would be very, very interested to know about B12 because mm. metformin is known to deplete vitamin right. B12 and your nervous system kind of needs that to function. So not... Maybe if you are not on metformin, it might not be as big of a concern. But if you are a diabetic and you're on metformin, I would damn sure be monitoring your your vitamin B12 or just taking one for the heck of it, just to make sure that you have enough. Right, right. And, and I think too, like a couple things that might help as well, depending, depending on the person, like makes me, as long as a person doesn't have histamine issues, like certain things like mm-hmm. apple cider vinegar can help. With mm. meals, with higher blood sugar, cinnamon, like, can yep, work. Cinnamon. I mean, I don't think at each meal that you you have to eat cinnamon, but, like, trying to incorporate some cinnamon in. Did I ever might... tell you about my cinnamon glycerite that I made? I think you did. You, you have. So good. Okay, so a glycerite, for those of you who don't know, is just, it's, it's an herbal extraction method where instead of soaking the herbs in water to make a tea or instead of soaking the herbs in alcohol to make a tincture or grinding them up into powder and putting them in capsules in this case the herbs are soaked in glycerin and a little bit of water and that extracts out the medicinal compounds 
So s- not all herbs you could do this with because their mm. constituents are not soluble in the glycerin. Right. Um, but it can work nicely for some herbs. I know I've seen chamomile in a glycerite form, but cinnamon makes a phenomenal glycerite and mm. it's pretty easy to make. I just, I made, um, I got cinnamon chips from like mountain rose herbs or something. I got a bottle mm. of vegetable glycerin and some water, mixed it up and poured it into a mason jar put a canning lid on it and threw it in a hot water bath and boiled it for like Mm. 45 minutes or an hour. It is like big red chewing gum, but in liquid form. Yeah. It's so good. I use it predominantly when I'm doing my fasting because the glycerin can kind of stabilize my blood sugar just a little bit if I'm getting a bit hypoglycemic, which side note we're going to talk about in the next episode. That's something I have way more experience with personally. It was hypoglycemia. So it's kind of good. It's kind of perfect, actually. We yeah. we really bring such balance to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I don't have any personal experience with high blood sugar, but you do. But I have mm-hmm. experience with low blood sugar, hypoglycemia swings. So I'll be able to weigh more in on that from firsthand experience. So, uh, but anyway, but if I'm feeling, you know, if I'm in one of my two or three day fasts and I'm feeling just a teeny bit hypoglycemic, or like a little bit off mm. kilter, I can take a couple squirts of the cinnamon glycerite and it yeah. just just kind of gives me that teeny bit of a boost. Or maybe it's because it tastes delicious. I'm not sure. But it is, <laughs> it's delicious. But I've also had some patients with blood sugar issues where I send them home with some of the cinnamon glycerite or maybe give them the recipe for it. Right. And it can be helpful for high blood sugar as well. That's what it's more known for, actually. Yeah. I just think the glycerite form is a nice delivery method. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Sounds it lovely. Is. I'll have to, I'll um, have to whip you some up. It's, it's yeah yummy stuff. But actually, and speaking of which, we are recording this in October, and you are an October birthday, if I remember. <gasps> I'm gonna mail you some cinnamon glycerite. There, done, oh. solved. Now you know your present. Excellent. Um, yeah, Love but it. yeah, I think um, I think a lot of the points you made were really solid, and I I like that you broke it down into four things like nutrition. Sleep is huge. I was going to mention sleep, mm-hmm. especially it's not to say that if this is not happening, you're off the hook completely, but I would especially pay attention to sleep quality. Mm. If your blood sugar is decent during the day, but you wake up and your fasting glucose in the morning is elevated. That's a big red flag that there's like apnea or some crappy sleep quality mm-hmm. issue that's messing with your blood sugar. And you could probably just work on the sleep rather than the blood sugar and have great effect on that. So I would be mindful of that. Yeah. And this might be something we talk a little bit about more so in the hypoglycemia scenario, but then I c- it can lead, I think, to a little bit of an overcompensation and to the hyper, like high fasted mm-hmm. blood sugar mm-hmm. is, you know, at night you're not eating food. So your body has to rely on glycogen stores. Yep. And so... I see a lot of clients who might be under eating in total or under eating carbs and they don't have the resources to maintain blood sugar through the night. And, and then, then it's like yep. cortisol is flooding in and that leads to like the blood sugar increasing. And sometimes you can see that showing up as higher fasted blood sugar in the morning. I think that honestly, a lot of times when I see sleep issues like that, like someone's waking up a lot at night. Mm-hmm. I'm almost always like, you know, once we get nutrition optimized, I want to see what happens to your sleep quality. 
it might not solve everything. There's other things that could be happening in sleep, and maybe we try some other strategies too. But a lot of blood sugar swinging type situations can get better once that are happening through the night can get better once nutrition's optimized during the day. And you can almost imagine like one kind of way to think of it is on some level, your body just probably is collecting data points and historical data every day. And it's kind of not to take the majesty out of the human experience at all, but you can almost imagine your, your body like a computer or a robot Mm -hmm. in a way of like, you know, you get one data point, two, three, four, five, six, and it's collecting those throughout your entire lifetime. And that it's trying to base future activity and the algorithm on predicting the future. Right. If you look, you know, in theory, if you have good balance of your plate, like you were saying, good balance of macros, and your nutrition is optimized, and you're eating at regular times every day, and you're not skipping meals and Pull yanking your body all over the place nutritionally, it should look like a sine wave that just repeats, right? Mm-hmm. Over and over again, you eat, then fasted, eat, fasted, eat, fasted, eat, fasted. And it should be that you're getting roughly similar peaks and valleys throughout that sine wave. And it should just, it should look like this repeating sine wave, no matter how far out you zoom or zoom in, it should look somewhat similar. But right. If it's all over the place, like what you were describing, like 300, then 66, (laughs) then 220, then 92, then then you skip a meal because you think I need to do intermittent fasting for my blood sugar. That's another thing that's popular and not a bad thing. I love fasting, but it's not the be all end all. Like you're skipping meals, you're eating at weird times a day, you're not getting all your macros, you're tanking your adrenals, you're, you're doing all these things. Well, now what should be a very nice rhythmical predictable sine wave graph that has years and years and years of historical data that looks mighty similar. Now you have at least the tail end of this chart that's looking all squirrely and your body doesn't know what the hell it's doing. And it's trying to anticipate future needs based off of this bullshit material you're giving it. So it's like, (laughs) you have to kind of cut your body some slack and realize that your body's going to have a hard time anticipating your glucose needs throughout the night and into the next morning if you have been on a blood sugar roller coaster ride the previous day or the previous week. Right. So I, right. I think that's actually a good point too. Yeah. And I even remember when I was going through my blood sugar struggles that I would actually wake up and couldn't fall asleep unless I ate something. Mm-hmm. There were situations like that where it'd be 1, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and like, unless I ate something, there was no way I was going to fall back to sleep. Yeah. Which, again, not, I think, an optimal scenario, but like that went away when blood sugar yeah. stabilized. Well, um, it was kind of your body was pulling a bitch, please. Yeah, right. Like, bitch, you please. Go on to sleep if you don't give me some sugar. Give me some Cheerios and then we'll talk right. about the sleep thing you want so badly. Right, right. Not a moment before. Oh my god. Yeah, but it was wild. And I think that like the movement piece is so interesting here too because movement's so great at helping with insulin sensitivity and just adding some some walking in around yep. meal times I think yep. can be really helpful if you have blood sugar swings even like 10 or 15 minutes post meal. Yeah. Can can be enough to kind of stabilize blood sugar. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff can be helpful too, I think, for people that are struggling with blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah, I think... You no, know, it's funny because 
my my bachelor's is in exercise science. And I still remember that was that was one of the big takeaways from like our exercise physiology coursework was that when you exercise, no matter what type, it could be just walking, it could be gardening, it could be cardio, weight training, higher intensity interval stuff. The kind of basics of all exercise is that you're going to be promoting better blood flow and building more capillaries, especially with cardio. You're going to be promoting good mitochondria function and therefore lowering inflammation. And you're going to have better energy kind of delivery and utilization because you have more mitochondria, again, primarily with cardio. Mm -hmm. Um, You're building bigger, stronger muscles, primarily with weight training. And they have an increased metabolic need. So then they're going to be sucking up some of your glucose and some of your fuel because they just need more more food if they're bigger. But also it, it promotes the sensitivity of receptors, especially insulin receptors. So you want to talk about insulin resistance being, you know, a person with insulin resistance has plenty of sugar and plenty of insulin to match that sugar. The problem is the insulin and the sugar get to the cells and it's like the cell, it's like the receptor is like, nope, Mm. pass, pass. We're good. Move on to the next one. And that happens with every cell of your body. So the glucose and the insulin just kind of float around in your body like, mm. crap, where do we go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? And it's it's an inefficiency. So if we can get the signaling to improve at the cellular level, at the receptor level, by encouraging those receptors to be more sensitive to insulin, then that can be really corrective for the issue too. And I, right. I want to reiterate something I've mentioned before is just pick exercise that you enjoy Right. Like I, I, for a long time, I convinced myself, oh, like I'm not an exerciser and like uh, I don't like exercise. It's like, no, the problem was I was doing exercises that I didn't really like and I wasn't that interested in. So I would, you know, like I joined a gym and then Mm. I would go for like a week or two and then get bored. Or like I joined Orange Theory thinking, oh, I'm going to love Orange Theory. They even have rowing machines. And i after like a couple sessions, I was like, yeah, no, like I, I've been trying to do all these things. And then I realized, honestly, like, I just I want to do something at home. I primarily I don't want to go anywhere. And I just want to do something fun, like the fitness marshal, or maybe like do some weight stuff in my own living room without anybody else. Bugging right. Me. And I just I just want to like crank up music. I just want to like play BTS on repeat and just not even think about it. That's my current at least. Right, right. Again, I Musical tastes uh, for both of us are very eclectic, but that's my right. my go-to for the last while has been just yeah. BTS. But, you know, it's like I just and now with with the pandemic situation, like I don't want to go to a gym and wear a mask. Right. And I'm not going to go to a gym without a mask. That's for sure. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't want people puffing and puffing on a treadmill and breathing at me two treadmills <laughs> away from me if they don't have a mask. But I also don't want to wear a mask at the gym. So I'm just not going to go. But yeah, find something like yeah, well, and I think that um, I think you're right. Like we sent, we tend to overcomplicate things in general. Like, yeah. oh, well, what's the best diet, or what's the best exercise, or what's this? Everybody what's needs to be doing high intensity interval training, or everybody needs to be doing CrossFit. Right. It's like I don't know. Well, if you don't I like think, CrossFit, don't do it. And I think that there's like maybe certain exercises that might be beneficial for certain things, but like. You're much better off choosing th- something that you like and enjoy that's still going to have a net 
great benefit. Maybe there's there's an exercise that's even slightly better, like has a little bit of a better um, and more research behind it or something for a particular condition. But if you hate doing that and you're never going to do that, why don't you do the thing that's still going to be great, but maybe yeah. not the best? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like sometimes people get very in the weeds with some of this stuff and you're much better off doing something that you know you'll be able to commit to than something that you can't. Like what you were saying with keto, I don't necessarily think that's the best diet for everyone at all. But like, similarly, like, you know, you're never going to do that. If that was like, you know, if it's not appealing to do that for the rest of your life, right? you have to reconcile with the idea that at some point, you're going to break away from that diet. And that yeah, that there's that's something to think about with any diet, I feel like, like, is this sustainable to do forever? Or is it something that you're going to use therapeutically for a short period of time? And right. It's not that those diets are bad. Like I just this week or yesterday, I recommended to one of my patients that she experiment with doing a low histamine diet for a few weeks, because I think that might be a, a big driver of her symptoms. But we already yeah. talked about, you know, we'll have you eliminate some of these foods for a period of time. We'll follow up in two weeks, see if it's working. We'll talk about what our next steps are. I gave her a list of some antihistamine foods so that she's not only focused on subtractions and we're already talking about, you know, realistic goal setting for the future. A lot of people with histamine intolerance are able to add in many of the high histamine foods. You just might need to eat them in moderation a bit more. Like you might not be able to have a day where you have a big bowl of tomato sauce and oil and vinegar on salad and an avocado and a banana and alcohol and i don't even know what else like maybe that all in one day is going to be too much for you going forward yeah but like aside from my patients with overt like mast cell disease like mastocytosis or mast cell activation syndrome aside from those people most people with run-of-the-mill histamine intolerance issues can reintroduce the foods to some degree but you might need to eliminate them and give your body a break for a period of a couple months. And then we can start reintroducing them strategically. So it's not that right. these stricter therapeutic diets are always bad. It's like, how much, like, do you have reasonable goal setting? And like, do you have a trajectory right out the get go? Or are you just flying blind? And then that can oftentimes lead to people thinking that they need to be on this diet forever, like low histamine or low FODMAP or paleo or whatever it is. Right. Right. Exactly. But like, I I haven't eaten gluten or dairy in 10 years and I find it with all the stuff available now I find it very sustainable and I I can eat that way for the rest of my life and it doesn't right. really cause it doesn't cause me any stress now. Right. Cuz like I figured out what gluten-free bread I like and I right. found, you know, the dairy-free yogurt that I like and and I just try to eat around the gluten and dairy thing and it's not really a pain in my ass anymore. So I find right. like, that's really sustainable. Something like keto, something that restrictive, I don't think is sustainable for the long haul. Right. So you could use it therapeutically for a short period of time. But for most people, it's not super enticing to think about being on a diet that restrictive for a long period of time. That's all. Agreed. But okay, well, let's let's touch briefly on supplements and herbs that could be helpful for blood sugar, too, because that's something. Yeah. Can I have one more thing before we get into that? No. Yes. Okay. okay. The only thing I was going to add is the stress management side of things. Like if cortisol is swinging all over the place, you're probably going to have some blood sugar swing. Mm -hmm. So like if you're just stressed to the max, working on the stress side of things is going to be 
really beneficial to your blood sugar. Yes. I just wanted to add that very briefly. No, that very worthy of, of acknowledgement there. Um, and to your point, like, we've talked a bit about cortisol on and off throughout the show. Like, yeah. cortisol is literally pulling glycogen out of your liver and making glucose all night for you and stabilizing right. your blood sugar. And it is the so-called stress hormone. And it's going to be elevated or dysregulated or the receptors for cortisol are going to be dysregulated when you're under chronic stress. So a root cause for a lot of dysfunction with IBS, SIBO, high blood sugar can actually be stress. So, you know, things like meditation and therapy and exercise, because exercise can help with stress reduction. Like that can be Mm. really helpful. Um, and Lord knows there's a lot of herbs that can help with the stress response, like the adaptogens and the nervines and things like chamomile can be a nice twofer. If you know that you're hella stressed and you also know you have IBS, maybe chamomile tea is a nice, nice way to go because it'll help with the stress response and the gut symptoms. Yeah. Little double whammy. I like the little double whammies when yeah, we can get them in. Little double whammies, you know. Uh, speaking of which, and that's another angle to segue into the herbs and supplements, that is... Oftentimes, why I find the use for things like berberine or black seed oil, mm. I, yeah. I oftentimes when I can, I'm not choosing antimicrobials purely for the sake of killing what I'm trying to kill. Right. Oftentimes, I'm trying to look for an antimicrobial that has some beneficial overlap with some other thing right. about that person. Mm. So yeah. like if you have SIBO and we're trying to treat dysbiosis or SIBO, Well, we might want to do berberine in particular if you have insulin resistance or diabetes or prediabetes because it does have a glucose normalizing effect. It has an anti-diabetic effect. Similarly, black seed oil has some good research on blood sugar as well as things like fatty liver as well as allergic conditions. I had one patient I've been working with. One of her symptoms was that her tongue would just like swell up all the time Mm. for like no reason when she would eat. And that completely went away when I had her start black seed oil. Wow. And I think it was like, yes, we were addressing the SIBO, but also it was anti-inflammatory and anti-allergenic to a point where I think it calmed down the bit of like squirrely allergic kind of stuff that she was displaying. And for her, it was manifesting as this like swollen, itchy, weird tongue Mm. kind of situation. Ew, yikes. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was an odd one. But, you know, so you could pick antimicrobials that happen to have some overlap with blood sugar. Right, um, I think that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, but those are two really well-known supplements. Like I said, cinnamon is is known mm-hmm. for helping with blood sugar. I like it in the glycerite because then you can enjoy the taste of the cinnamon, but you don't have to put cinnamon on all of your food for the rest of your life. So I think that's a nice <laughs> right. little practical application of it. Yeah. Believe it or not, I have a surprising one. Okay. Reishi, reishi mushroom, Mm. believe it or not, can help with hyperglycemia. And I've seen in some situations, it can be wicked helpful. Like, I can't even describe it to you. I have this one woman, she got a CGM. We were working together and she, her blood sugar was just always in the two Mm. or three hundreds. Always. Like she didn't even have low points. And when we got her started on the reishi we just had her get like the the capsules of reishi mushroom when i started her on reishi within maybe a week she said that her overall blood sugar lowered by about 100 points whoa it was still high you know she went from being in like the two or three hundreds to the one or two hundreds so it was still high but it 
really helped a lot. Mm. I don't remember the exact mechanism off the top of my head. I think it has something to do with the receptor signaling and making that more efficient. Mm. But it it really helped. And I've had a couple other cases where reishi really, really helped cool. um, in cases with high blood sugar. So that's another consideration as well that I like that I think is not talked about a lot. And that reishi also is beneficial for the immune system. It, it can be beneficial for things like autoimmunity. It's, it's good for the nervous system. Probably yeah, I can. Um, actually, in the Aura Ring users group, um, I don't really poke, poke around in there very much, but every now and then I will. I've seen some people comment that Reishi seemed like it promoted more REM sleep for them. Mm. So cool. there's a little additional nugget. I think maybe not the capsules, like the, the, the mycelium necessarily, but I know like Reishi tincture is talked about it, in Chinese medicine. It's said to stabilize the Shen which is kind of like the, mm. the the heart or the spirit. So it can actually be helpful for the stress kind of response and like helping kind of take that burden off the soul or the heart in TCM. Right. So maybe it's acting in that way too. But I tend to think of it more as like immune modulating and blood sugar and good for the nervous system, which you mentioned, and possibly good for sleep. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, oh, and I have one more that I'll throw out too. Remember what you were talking about, like the delayed response issue Mm -hmm. that you were describing? So that is a thing. There's something called the first phase insulin response. And you can have a delay or an inefficiency with that first phase insulin response. So taking things or doing things that promote GLP-1 activity can be helpful for that. So things like quercetin Mm -hmm. can be useful for that. And I have seen quercetin lower blood sugar before. And it's a nice additional like little antihistamine bend to it. So that's kind of nice. It also seems to have a microbiome modulating effect. Like it seems like it lowers proteobacteria and it seems like Mm -hmm. it might have a nutritive effect for, I think, acromancia, if I remember correctly. So that's a nice added bonus for quercetin. But there's this whole kind of world of like the first phase insulin response that we'll probably get into more in the next episode, but trying to promote GLP-1 activity and trying to promote that first phase insulin secretion can actually be really helpful. And quercetin is one of the things that can do that. Yeah, cool. I love that. Yeah. So for what it's worth. Yeah. All right. Well, I think think that taps out my brain, at least for the moment, on high blood sugar. Oh, and we've alluded to this a couple of times, but I'll just throw out there. A continuous glucose monitor can be really mm-hmm. helpful for a lot of folks. Yeah. So what it would be, you get a, you know, a, a contraption, a monitor that is a, maybe a little bit smaller than a typical cell phone, and you get these sensors that you would you would put on the back of your arm, like your triceps. I've I've mm-hmm. used them before. That it doesn't hurt at all. It looks like it would totally hurt because there's like a needle going into your arm. You don't feel it at all, honest to God. But you slap that thing on your arm and it stays there for about two weeks and you get a continuous blood sugar reading. They're used more with type 1 diabetics, but now they're starting to gain a little bit more popularity with people who do not have type 1. Uh, But that can help you hone in on what exactly your pattern looks like, like like what we were describing, the highs, the lows, and the speed at which you drop in blood sugar. And it can help you start to correlate oh, like this food really spiked my blood sugar, but this one did not. Because sometimes it'll surprise you. Sometimes white rice does nothing to your blood sugar, but the almond flour crackers do. Or vice versa. I know like, actually I had my husband wear one for a little while and he noticed that corn across the board is bad for his blood sugar. Way Mm -hmm. more so than oatmeal, 
bread, rice, any other carb, corn for him specifically seems to be the worst. Oh my so gosh. Yeah. He's had to give up his addiction of corn tortilla chips and uh and like corn tacos and such. So we're we're trying to be more mindful of that. But you might be surprised to find that certain foods with the same amount of carbs trigger a blood sugar response right. and others do not. Did I ever tell you my uncle is a type two diabetic and he's actually observed I forget which one's which, but one type of apple I think like green apples spike his blood sugar really badly, but red apples do not. Hmm. Or vice versa. I forget which one's which, but I think it was green spikes and red does not. So like even stuff like that, that's weird and bizarre that you would never predict. You can kind of figure that out if you have a couple weeks worth of data. Um, But these CGMs are not expensive now. Like I got, I got one and I just, I asked my, my primary care provider, I said, hey, I have a strong family history of type 1 diabetes, which is the honest God truth. And I've had hypoglycemia issues, which we'll get into next time. So I just, I want to have that, that ability to monitor for a little while. And she was all too happy to write the prescription for me. Um, and I did not bill it through my insurance. I got it completely out of pocket. I think the receiver unit was 85. And I think I got two of the hoozy jigs that go on your arm for like 65 hmm So it really wasn't too bad. I think I used a good RX coupon. Um, but it's really, hmm. really not a bad price. In the US, you need a prescription. If you're in Europe, you can get the same one, the Freestyle Libre, you can get over the counter, actually, in a lot of countries. But, you know, here in America, we can't have nice things. So I I kept, for a while, I was like, I was calling the company and I was harassing them every like six months. And I would ask them, hey, is the is the over-the-counter direct-to-consumer one available yet? Is it available yet? Is it available right. yet? And I think eventually I just gave up because I was like, you know, no, the FDA is never going to approve this for over-the-counter right. use because it would be too easy for people to manage their health. And, <laughs> and then it would cut into drug companies' pocketbooks if we couldn't sell everybody metformin every right. other day. So no, I just, I gave up. I got pessimistic and I decided that no, it's never going to be approved. I'm just going to stop calling them. But, um, but the one that I like that's available here in the States for a prescription is called the Freestyle Libre. So yeah. you can look into it. It's very economical for what you get and it can really be incredibly useful information. Yeah. I think that that's such a great, uh, I like Freestyle Libre too. And I, um, there's a, there is a direct-to-consumer one that I think's like newer, the January AI um, app. I had a client that used that one. I believe they give you two like sensors for three hundred. So it's maybe a little bit more expensive. Gotcha. Um, but they have like an app. I think they're kind of developing it over time. Like they're getting feedback for for on the app situation because it's newer. Like I don't know if it's the pilot like a pilot program with it or what, but um, I know a client that did that and, and liked it. I was kind of in the app. I had her send me her login and I was seeing her data and fooling around with the app and it, it looked pretty interesting. Um, yeah. But I, I think the CGM stuff too can really help you hone in on not only like specific foods, but how to combine things. Mm. Like... Some sometimes there's foods that it's like, well, if I have them by themselves, like this is clearly going to eat to bother me. But if I yeah. have it in the context of a meal, it doesn't. So like even subtle stuff like yeah. that, I think, can be really interesting when you do CGM. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it can be useful for the hypoglycemic crowd as well, which we'll get into next time. But yeah, I think it's wonderful that we have this tool. You just, you have to, you know, bat your eyelashes and say pretty please to your doctor. But (laughs) I think it's cheap enough, especially if you tell them, because I told my provider, I said, I know I don't have any of the diagnostic codes that would merit this prescription, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I'm not overweight. I'm not diabetic. I'm not pre-diabetic. I don't have metabolic syndrome. I don't have any of right. that stuff. But I want you to write the prescription and I'll just pay for it out of pocket. Like, right. if you if you say that to them and they no longer have to worry about insurance coverage, that's actually a weird hang-up I've noticed more than right. once. I've noticed a doctor or I've heard stories from patients that their doctor was not willing to run a test or order something because they thought the insurance would not cover it. Specifically, that was their excuse. So I find that sometimes if you just want something and you're willing to do what it takes or pay out of pocket for it, tell your provider that and say, look, I'm not even going to bill it through insurance. I'll just pay for it out of pocket. And then that kind of takes away that barrier for them where they're like, oh, okay. Because I think... Maybe on some level they dread getting a nasty phone call or a one-star Google review because, you know, they ordered homocysteine and it wasn't covered by insurance and you were charged $400 for your blood work or whatever. So you can just tell them, no, I'll pay out of pocket. I won't be angry to a promise. And then that kind of smooths over the ruffled feathers. Right. Right. Exactly. So worth looking into. Oh, and I'll mention one more thing at the very, the, the tail end of this podcast there is an acromancia probiotic now mm. pendulum. Um, it is being sold as a blood sugar stabilizing probiotic. It's acromancia, some clostridium species, and maybe a little bit of something else I forget now. Um, but it's the first acromancia probiotic on the market. And they're starting to put out ads and, and pick up some steam it's really expensive. It's like 150 bucks a month, US mm. dollars. So it's it's very expensive for a probiotic, but it's very novel. And that might also be something that you pursue. Um, I would I would pursue all the other stuff that we talked about first. So it's perfect right. that I mentioned it at the very end of the podcast. But that does exist. It's out there now. Um, I have one patient who recently told me she's going to order it. She's going to try it out. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I... I don't know what else to say about it. I don't have any real experience myself or with patients with it. Um, but there is an acromancia probiotic. It's officially out and it is strongly being marketed as a blood sugar stabilizing probiotic or an anti-diabetic probiotic. So time yeah. will tell as we get more reviews and, and we yeah. hear more about it. It'll be curious to see what comes of it. Yeah. Well, and I think even trying to do some strategies that might raise your own acromancia yeah. could also be valuable as well. Uh, so eating I see acromancia low very right. frequently. I see it extinct infrequently right. for what it's worth. So you, most of you listening to this probably have some acromancia. It's probably just low if I had to guess right. for a lot of you. <laughs> right. Right. So eat those polyphenols. Yep. Refer Do back little... to the podcast on polyphenols. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to think if we if I have anything else. Yeah. Acromancia seems like it likes FODMAPs. Yeah. So you could throw in some FODMAPs. Um, it seems like it likes... Fasting a little bit. Um, fasting, yeah. Quercetin, like I said, I think quercetin boosts it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, did you know, metformin boosts acromancia? 
Whoa. I know. So they're starting to think maybe that's part of how metformin works. Whoa. After all. I know. But virtually every other medication lowers it. So don't get too excited. Metformin is the only one. And I wouldn't recommend starting on metformin purely to raise acromancy. I think that you have other ways to do that, namely FODMAPs and polyphenols. Um, But yeah, I thought that was really interesting when I came across that in particular. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Guys, I think uh, this was a lot of information, but hopefully it was helpful. Like I said, the odds are roughly 50% of people who are listening to this podcast have some hyperglycemia issue that they could address, and it would probably have a great beneficial effect on your IBS. But also just keep in mind, you know, going back to if, if in theory, the thickness of your vagus nerve has become thin or compromised, it's going to take time. Like it's going to take time to repair that and get the girth back in your vagus nerve. So try to be patient with yourself and try to be kind. It's might not be a scenario where you have a good blood sugar day on Tuesday and then on Wednesday you have the best poop of your life and you're like, I'm cured. It might be months and months and months of diligently nourishing your body and controlling your blood sugar and regulating your blood sugar and managing your Mm -hmm. plate. It might be months and months and months before it really starts to pay off in symptomatic improvement. But keep the faith, give your body what it what it needs, what it wants. And I really do think it will pay you back in the long run. I think that that's a beautiful summary. And you need to have that vagal girth. Yep. Oh my gosh. That's, I'm feeling an Instagram reel coming on. I don't know (laughs) what yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to go a lot of different directions, Nikki. I know it's going to be, I'm going to include hashtag vagal girth. And then I'm going to tag Amy when I come up with whatever the idea is, and it's going to be our new hashtag. It's Instagram's going to be like, there is one post with this hashtag. Right. You're You're going to get like a, a, someone, some Karen on the internet's going to be like flag your content for 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 being get your mind out of the inflammatory inflammatory or something. Nope. Nope. That's going to be, that's going to be my new favorite, my new favorite, uh, hashtag and i'm gonna tag you right yeah. next to that hashtag so i love we'll see. it i have to i have to get the creative juices and think of a of a reel for that but you can keep your eyes peeled on at triangle guts on instagram because that's where that's where it will live whenever i come up with the idea for this one mm. and i will tag at amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore rd yes Ta-da. All right, look, and a little plug for our Instagrams. Look at that. Yes. <laughs> Pretty smooth. All right, my friend. Well, I think that is it for blood sugar. Guys, until next time, take care. And like I said, in the next episode, we will be talking about hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, which is something that I could speak to uh, quite a bit more. So I'll tell you about my experience with that and how it's affecting your gut in the next episode. Take care. Bye.